This is the Freshman 15. I'm Jeremy, but you can call me Cowboy Curtis. I'm Daniel, and sometimes I like to dress up like a woman and yell action. You ready to get started? Let's do it. Exhibit A, a photograph of the victims, my bike and me. Uh. Exhibit B, another photograph. What's missing from this picture? It's just me, without my bike. Is this something you could share with the rest of us, Amazing Larry? So, Daniel, I hate starting off each episode in the same way, but I feel like I kind of have to because for this particular episode, I have to say this was the one that hurt the most to not do in the first season for oh, me yeah. personally. I feel you on that one. I wanted so badly, and we're, it's Tim Burton. I wanted a Tim Burton episode so badly for that first 15. And we didn't get to it. It was like a gut punch. Yeah, because, I mean, we can, we named him again on our list, right, of people sure. we wanted to get to. Uh, and I think I was under the impression, not because we decided it, but just because I don't I think how important he's been that we would get to him. So much to talk about with Tim Burton and so much to talk about his freshman film. So here's the thing. I was talking to somebody. I was letting him in on, on what we were going to be talking about today. Yeah. I was just trying to, you know, I was trying to feel it out. I mentioned, oh, yeah, we're going to be doing Tim Burton's first film. You know, he looked at me. He didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I'm wondering if people are going to be surprised. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was his first film. Yeah. When you watch it, it's obvious. Of course. But, you know, maybe you're right because it's not really generally, it's not the film that comes up when, when Tim Burton's name comes up. I'm reminded of when we did the David Fincher episode because mm-hmm. there was so much to talk about with David Fincher, but also the franchise that his freshman film happened to be a part of, which was, of course, the Alien yeah. franchise. Kind of a similar thing with this because there's so much to talk about, not just the body of work of Tim Burton and his work on this freshman film, but also there's just there's a whole podcast worth of material just on the phenomenon of Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee <laughs> Herman, in that he was a phenomenon. Now, you probably, I'm sure you were old enough to be cognizant of the Pee Wee Herman phenomenon when that when that sort of started, but you had to have been pretty young, right? I was, I mean, so I, the Pee Wee Herman phenomenon for me was as a result of the movie. Yeah. So um, the movie, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, it's 1985, right? Right. I mean, I don't think I saw, there's no way I saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure until I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine. And by that time, it would have been three or four years old. Okay. A few years after the fact. Yeah. But then, for me, it was a phenomenon. Right. So, is it different with you? I mean, was it like... It 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 was such a big, huge thing when this movie and then the subsequent... Pee Wee Herman mania kind of happened. And I remember seeing, now I didn't see Pee Wee's Big Adventure in the theater. So it was probably a year or two after it came out. My childhood friend, his name was Greg. He had this like sort of, it seemed like an inside joke with himself almost. If he was telling me a story about something that happened, he thought it was really funny to at the end of it say, and I looked like this, blah, 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 blah. and he would do this crazy face, and I'd be like, "What is he doing?" And and finally one day I was like, "What does that mean?" You kept saying, "And I looked like this," and then you will shake your face at me and like with bug eyes, and he's like, "Well, you know, 
Large Marge. Large Marge. And I, and I said, I don't know what Large Marge is. And he said, oh, my gosh, you've never seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I said, no. So, you know, he said, we, you know, we were probably, whatever, 10, 11 years old. And he said, come to my house. We're watching Pee-wee's Big Adventure. See, I envy you in that you know when, in the circumstances when, around when you saw it. Because I don't, rem- I just remember seeing it. I was, yeah. I, I was so young. I, for some reason, I don't think this can be true. But I did watch a lot of movies alone when I was young, and I feel like this was one of those. I I don't know if I saw it on television or where I saw it, but it's once I saw it, I saw it a lot. Yeah. I saw it over and over and over It had this kind of Monty Python quality to it where, like, you saw it and then you quoted it to your friends. of course. And it became, like, jokes from it became jokes, like, inside jokes with you and your friends. Even though, like, a bajillion people saw the movie and everyone knew these jokes, it still kind of felt like this thing that we were all in on. Yeah, and didn't, like, I'm, I'm assuming some jokes originated from this film. Like, did I know what you are? Yeah, I know what you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I know yeah. you are, but what am I? I mean, is that? Yeah, yeah. That if you love it so much, movie? why don't you marry it? And and that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. Did that start with this movie? I, I honestly don't, remember, don't know. Yeah, when I was re-watching, I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is where all of that came from. Maybe. I, I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Some of it's so, and that's, that's, that's what's so intriguing about the film. By the way, and I feel like I have to, admi- I, I have to mention this. I want to say... I know we did like a kids special earlier this mm-hmm. summer, but of all the regular episodes, regular freshman films, this has been the first one that I've been able to sit down and watch with our five-year-old oh, <laughs> in order man. to prepare for this episode. And how did he, did he enjoy it? He really did. He, he was like, he was really, really, I mean, this is what happened actually. I pulled up a clip from the movie uh, from YouTube and I had it playing on my phone and he all but grabbed the phone out of my hand because he was so immediately intrigued by Paul Rubin's performance as Pee Wee Herman. Wow. He just wanted to see more of it. And so I was like, okay, so, you know, we, uh, it's on Netflix right now. So we, we threw it up on Netflix and he was just, I mean, he was just so zeroed in oh my gosh. on the whole film, which is not easy um, for a five-year-old to. I need to give that a shot for my five-year-old. Uh, I'll tell you what, man. And there, were all, there was a bunch of, uh, moments that I'm like, uh, I don't remember all the details right. of the movie well enough to know, is this going to get inappropriate? Not once did it ever get inappropriate for, for a five-year-old. So. Which is, I think, surprising, because I think going back to it, I was also anticipating those things. Yeah. And and I don't actually, and maybe we can talk about that, I'm not sure why I was expecting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for some reason, I'm like, oh, yeah, this kind of has some dark, more inappropriate moments. And I'm mean, not to say that there aren't maybe dark moments, but they weren't, they were certainly different than I remember them to be. Hard to imagine, but in case you haven't seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure or have, or don't know who Pee-wee Herman is or are unfamiliar with this character, in a nutshell, Pee-wee Herman is this sort of man-child character who wears a gray suit and a bow tie and it's a red it's bow tie, a red bow tie. And it's it's more or less just accepted that he has the mind and personality of, I don't know, almost like a seven or eight year old, but in a really specific sort of way and a really specific kind of cadence. And um, the movie follows him losing his most prized possession, which is, of course, his red bicycle and the quest that he goes on across America to get that bicycle back and all the crazy characters that he meets along the way. And yeah. That sounds like the plot of a kid's movie. <laughs> and you know what? It is a kid's movie. Right. But it's also a Tim Burton movie. Yeah. And so 
there's something more going on than just crazy rollicking kids entertainment. There's this really specific aesthetic that I don't think anybody had ever seen before. And that's part of what makes the movie so just mind blowing, really. Oh my goodness, it's so mind blowing. I mean, let's I guess one of the thing one of the places where we can start is where the movie starts. The house. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman wakes up. Mm-hmm. He has the home that every child their dream home. You know, I kept actually thinking back to to our bottle rocket episode throughout because it's done with like in the same way that we mentioned in our Wes Anderson bottle rocket episode. Wes Anderson has this aesthetic that sort of how does a 12 year old boy view the world? This movie does a very similar thing, but I would say this. How does a seven or eight year old boy view the world? But it's a really specific type of seven or eight year old boy. I was constantly reminded of sort of the aesthetic of uh, Woody from Toy Story or something like that. That's good. I like that connection. You can see there's just this kind of like um, kids, cowboys and Indians Mm -hmm. sort of aesthetic that's in his his bedroom and everything's just kind of, uh, I don't know, 50s (laughs) pop gun culture. Right. And then you have Pee Wee Herman, which is this kind of popsicle stick man who just kind of dances through life. And the fact that he's not an actual kid only adds to it rather than takes away. Absolutely. And here's one of the fascinating things that just connected for me this last weekend. So he wakes up, you know, he's in his pajamas. He slides down the pole. Right. A magically turn. He has his clothes. Right. A la Batman. Right. Exactly. And the idea of the sliding down the pole, I remember how cool that was. Yeah. I went to the park this last weekend with my five-year-old. And the one thing he wanted to do, the reason why he wanted to go to this park is because there was a fireman pole. Yeah. To slide down. Do you remember that when that was, when the idea of having something like that in your house for some reason, I remember being a kid and thinking sliding down a fireman's pole is the ultimate fun, cool thing to be able to do. (laughs) And there, there it is. Yeah, there it is. I mean, it was just the, you know, my my wife and I always joke about, you know, the mythology of the race car bed, Mm -hmm. you know, every little boy has seen a race car bed and thinks that that would be just the ultimate thing to sleep on. That's that's kind of the spirit of this whole movie yeah. is like what would be the ultimate for, you know, a seven, eight-year-old boy? How does he think the world works, you know, if you were to go on an adventure, if you were to meet a biker gang or if you were to fall in love with a waitress or if you were to, how would that kid envision that would work? It's kind of all in this movie, and that's what's so amazing about it. All the way to the, what would you like to have for breakfast? You have eggs, but then on top of the eggs, he pours Mr. T cereal. Which was a real cereal, by the way. I don't (laughs) know if you remember Mr. T cereal. I actually don't remember it. Pity the fool doesn't put this on there. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and there's so much of it I was surprised that I remembered, but there were other things that I had forgotten. Amazing how well the film still holds up. Some of the jokes that are in that movie, he uh, he had just crashed a motorcycle oh, into yeah. a sign, and he's unconscious. <laughs> no, I love that scene and, so much. And, and he's coming to, and he's surrounded by a whole bunch of cowboys who are like, son, what what happened to you? And he says, I, I, I don't know. I don't remember. Hey, kid, what's your name? I can't remember. Where are you from? I can't remember. Can't you remember anything? I remember the Alamo. 
And then they all just throw their hats into the air and start whooping and wailing and hollering because he's, of course, he's in Texas. It's it's just such a beautiful moment that's, you know, it's there. Even as a kid, you can appreciate it. But as an adult, it's twice as funny. So here's the, the joke that I actually didn't remember. And I was laughing out loud in this moment was when he and Simone are in the mouth of the dinosaur, yeah. right? And he's talking about her dreams. Simone, this is your dream. You have to follow it. I know you're right, but... But what? Everyone I know has a big butt. Come on, Simone, let's talk about your big butt. And, and, the, and the boyfriend and is the, listening at the door. And the boyfriend is listening, and then he con- continues to go on, and she says, oh... No one's ever put it to me like that before. It was amazing. Yeah, it's it's perfect. Yeah, it's, it's so perfect. Good. And that was that was part of what was so cool about the movie was okay, side note. Here's what I hate about basically every movie for kids. They do a pop culture wink to the parents. Oh, of course. All through it. Yeah. And I hate it so much. Because it's it to me, I'm just like you. You think you're being clever, and you think you're throwing a bone to the parents that have to sit in the theater with their kids to watch this, but you're not. You're just showing how out of touch you are. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know, like somebody's handing something to someone else and the other one says, nope, you can't touch this. No, 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 no. And it's just that <laughs> stupid kind of pop culture right. shit that we just have to like yeah. pretend is clever, but it's not. And I kept waiting and dreading some kind of like winky moment like that all throughout Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And not once did it ever happen. He managed to not insult his audience with fake bullcrap like that and he just he kept it light and appropriate and clever it's it's just a smart film that you can watch with your kids and that's so rare and he did it his first time out that that's that's such an achievement and yeah and it's really amazing and i think what i mean what we're talking about is this this sense of this transcendent humor right it's not actually a humor that's oh you know what we're gonna do we're gonna have humor for kids and we're gonna have humor for adults it's this this other level seems to hit all the different notes. Yeah. And I wonder if that comes out of Tim Burton's relentless commitment. Like, I mean, well, I guess what you've already said is to the aesthetic. Like, he's, he's so committed to what is on screen and to the environment and to the tone and to all these different things that he's creating. That in and of itself becomes something larger. Even if you know, oh, this is a movie that clearly has sets. This is a movie that clearly has well-timed moments. This is a movie that doesn't, that wouldn't happen in reality. But for some reason, and I guess we are connecting, or I'm connecting a lot in my mind to the Wes Anderson episode. He almost creates this, oh, I'm going to, I'm actually going to create this box for you to live in. And and even though it's going to, there's some parameters and there's some borders and you're going to be confined, it's actually going to kind of, as a result of that, transcend it. And everyone can kind of get something out of it. It's really remarkable. It it leads directly into one of the things that we talk about is, you know, what does this particular director carry on through the rest of his work? Tim Burton, and, and I think this is what people know Tim Burton most for, and that's his ability to take something that exists and reimagine it completely. The thing that I didn't realize until I was actually doing a little uh, research for this episode was that Pee Wee Herman as a character already existed. So was this is one of my questions? Did he had already done like a TV special or something before this, or was sort of? So Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens was of course the actor that mm-hmm. that portrays Pee Wee Herman, created the character, 
This was a character that existed since the late 70s. Wow. Paul Rubens was in The Groundlings, which is, of course, this Im- improvisational With cr- Phil comedy. Hartman. With Phil Hartman. We were doing an improv, an extended improv, about a place like the comedy store, the improv, a comedy club. Yeah. And uh, we were all supposed to do characters you might see performing at a comedy club. So I, c- I could never remember punchlines to jokes. So my character was a bad comic who you would never, ever expect to make it yeah and so that i i just uh, told jokes where i couldn't remember the The punchlines and pull props out of a bag he borrowed a a friend's suit and a bow tie and all that and you know did this kind of you know sort of child (laughs) stiff laughy character a little bit still this kind of rough unformed thing and by the way this is you know a good five six years before Mm -hmm. this movie ever came out he saw that it got a great reaction, so he started doing the character again and again wow. on stage until finally he uh, was able to use the character in one or two uh, Cheech and Chong movies. Oh, okay. There's a, there's a clip online somewhere where you can see. I can't remember which Cheech and Chong film it was, but he plays like a hotel clerk. Very different oh, than the funny. <laughs> yeah, very different than the Pee Wee Herman that you know you see in this film and the one that we all kind of know. <clears throat> Excuse me, sir. Yeah, what do you want? Uh, why don't you give him his luggage, man? Because he owes $262.50, and in another five minutes, there'll be an additional thirty-seven fifty. Yeah, well, you know, like, why don't you just give him his luggage, you know, and then we'll come back later and give you the bread. Why don't you forget life? Hey, listen, you hey, little... let go of me! Hey, give him his fucking hey, luggage, you why little Why don't asshole. you let go of me? Hey, I know you are, but what am I? This was a Pee-wee Herman that was just very uptight. Right. Even swore, would use the F word with people. And Wait, really? Yeah. So he was a man-child who was actually... who wasn't consistent with the child kind of aspect. Yeah, it, 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 it wasn't quite there yet. Okay. But it had this kind of like cult sort of interest. And like I said, he performed it regularly on stage. And that's what was kind of interesting because so often we talk about these directors and their mm-hmm. freshman film and this is a passion project and this is their Hail Mary moment and all that. In this particular case, Tim Burton was already a director of animated shorts right and he had been so for uh, over 10 years at that point and he was doing these little shorts and he clearly had this great aesthetic and this comedic sense and and warner brothers was familiar with the paul rubens Wee herman character mm-hmm. and they said we we think that this is a movie and we don't exactly know how or what but they they wanted to work with paul rubens to figure out how yeah. do we turn this character into a film they went through a whole list of directors and all sorts of different options. And I guess as the story goes, they saw the animated short from Tim Burton, Frank and Weenie. Immediately, Paul Rubens says, That's the guy. I, this is it. This is the person. I think if he can bring that aesthetic to an actual live action film with my character, I think that could be an incredible film. So they got Tim Burton and the rest is history. Phil Hartman, right, co-wrote with Paul Rubens this exactly. this film. And they had this idea for Pee Wee Herman. I can't remember what the idea was. And then while on set or in the studio, they saw that there were these people riding around on these bikes. And he asked for one of those, and they gave him one. And he was so enthralled by the idea of having a bike and the bike that he had that he was like, oh, yeah. this is actually the story, is, is the relationship between this man child and this bike that he that he's riding around right. like again i don't know if that's true or if that's just part of the mythology i like the idea it very well could be um because they did write a script that didn't involve a bike before they wrote the one that did 
they eventually decided to evolve the idea into, you know, what would be sort of this cross country, almost buddy style movie, right? but with one guy who just kept making friends with different types of buddies throughout the, throughout the picture. And that became Pee Wee's big adventure. The bike being the, the MacGuffin. Oh yeah. Needless to say, Tim Burton saw the property and figured out a way to take everything that he was good at and merge it with everything that was funny about this concept. Would any other director look at it and said, you know what? Here's a great shot for a stop motion dinosaur sequence. I know. You know, something like that. But of course, this is what Tim Burton knows. And so that makes perfect sense. But that's part of what makes the movie the movie. And I don't know. It, it was such a perfect chemical marriage. <laughs> this this character and Tim Burton's sensibilities. This was going to be the birth of this incredible director, incredible creator. And you know, the other thing that's also really amazing to me was that Tim Burton really never returned to Pee Wee Herman. No, I mean, he made what? I know he made Pee Wee's Big Top, or I can't remember what it was. Big Top Pee Wee, which Big is not Top a good Pee-wee. movie. Okay. And of course, Pee Wee's Playhouse, which is the his Saturday morning which, by the way, half the cast was from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, just in different roles. Oh, okay. And then he recently came out with Pee-wee's Big Holiday, right? That's like really oh, yeah, recent. On Netflix, yeah. Yeah. Which, I don't know if you watched I it. I didn't. It's probably the closest to the spirit of the, of the original movie of, of, of anything that I've ever seen. Wow. And I think that was what was kind of, kind of missing, I guess, in a way, when Pee-wee Herman became just a straight-up kid's property. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go so far as to say it just became a way to sell product or a way to, you know, fill a, a Saturday morning time slot. But it didn't have the Tim Burton magic anymore. But it actually took a while for the Pee Wee Herman phenomenon to to kind of die out because it was such a strong idea. And it just, it was an idea that had a lot of heat on it. I mean, even when uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, the, yeah. the Saturday morning show that he did, which he envisioned as being a Captain Kangaroo-esque <laughs> Uh, show because originally the studio wanted to make that into it just a, like mm-hmm. a, a regular cartoon and he said no I want to it should be live action I want to act in it and I think it can work and everyone was excited about mm-hmm. it the, the budget was enormous for, for the show uh, Cindy Lauper sang the theme song wild It was something Phil Hartman was on, you know, episodes, yeah, by the way. Yeah, uh, he was on there. This, this show was the introduction of actors like Lawrence Fishburne, Benicio Del Toro. No. They all got their start on Pee-wee's what? Playhouse. What? I need to find these clips. It's true. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned Cowboy Curtis before, but, yeah. but that was, of course, Lawrence Fishburne. Could you pass me some mustard, please, Cowboy Curtis? I thought you were going to bring the mustard. <laughs> that's crazy it's amazing so bringing kind of it back to what you said and, and maybe why it lost its appeal is it making it children's fair is that one of the things that tim burton does in this film certainly but and also in his other films i'm thinking specifically of beetlejuice and edward scissorhands i'm sure there are other examples is that he takes for granted, let's say, something like a suburban environment, and then he inserts something into it that doesn't fit. I don't, I don't want to say an outsider necessarily, but maybe, but it's certainly it's incongruent with what's around. But everything around it is, is something that 
that we can see and understand maybe as a viewer. Right. And, and so it makes this one thing stick out as a sore thumb, but that one thing is actually the, the focus of the film. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about Pee-wee. Everything around Pee-wee is identifiable as something I, I'm aware of or I know, right? Like even the houses around Pee-wee Herman's home. I mean, it's, it's a little bit heightened, but I'd still say, oh, okay, I am, that's a suburban street, the pet store, the movie studios, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, you think of Edward Scissorhands, and, and yes, suburbia is heightened. It's stylized, but it's a representation of normalcy. But then, yeah, then something is placed into it. An interrupter. An interrupter. And that becomes the thing that Tim Burton then focuses on. And I think that's one of the appeals to me as a viewer. Sure. Because I can connect with so much of it. And then this interrupter becomes something I'm really intrigued by in terms of how it's interacting with the environment I'm aware of. Yeah, and and it was interesting to me that you brought up Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice because, and I could be wrong, and if someone is listening and they can prove me wrong on this, I'm, I'm completely open to it. I think those were the only two films that were not in any way based on a pre-existing character or property or story or real-life account oh, wow. or book or something like that just completely made up for that film. Interesting. Tim Burton has done so many different films. They're all based on something that has previously existed, though, wow. with the exception of those two, I think. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I don't actually think I've made that connection to the majority of his work. Yeah. I, you know, you always think of like Tim Burton as like, okay, yeah, he... He tends to do a lot of remakes, but the fact of the matter is, in one form or another, that's basically the business he's in, is not just imagining new ideas, but reimagining ex- ideas and stories that already exist. Wow. Which kind of brings up an interesting topic. In Hollywood, the major studios, everyone wants the big bankable property. They love superheroes. Mm-hmm. They love sequels. They love properties that everyone's already familiar with. And they want to present them to you again because mm-hmm. it feels like a money in the bank thing. I'll admit it. When I hear Tim Burton, I hear remake. Yeah. What's he going to remake now? What's the beloved property that he's either going to hit it out of the park or he's going to completely destroy and ruin? And I don't know. I'm just I'm just sort of uh, I'm, I'm curious for your take on it. What do you think is our obsession with having stories retold in a different way? as opposed to just desiring new stories? Yeah, I think that's a great question. There's something about knowing what to expect in a story and being able to maybe compare that to something previously. And in the sense that maybe it gives me as a viewer sort of a, a power to say, oh, do I relate to this or not? I mean, in in the sense of my current experience. And so I will say what I appreciate, though, about Tim Burton's work for whatever reason, when I hear like Tim Burton's making something, even if I'm aware of it having a history, I'm so intrigued by his reimagining of it because I actually think it's going to be a, a singular vision. I think that what I'm getting is something that is going to be new and something that he's going to have his fingerprints all on. I mean, I think of Herman Milville, right? I mean, like most of his works are all based on some historical accounts and I don't know if he's ever told a quote-unquote original story, but what he's done with them, I'm grateful for because they actually make the stories that they're based on, they actually feel really palpable. They're they're really real to me. And I think that Tim Burton does something similar. 
Shakespeare. Uh, you no, know, of course, yeah. How many original stories did Shakespeare write? Uh, almost none. Yeah. They were 95% based on stories that were already around. I mean, there's a comfort in stories that we already know, and we already know that we like. We all know as a culture that we like the Willy Wonka story, mm-hmm. you know? We all saw Gene Wilder. We loved him in that story. We all get this warm feeling when we think about that as a kid. We think about a Tim Burton version of it even before we've seen it, and we're like, oh, wow, I bet that would be pretty cool. I think there's a temptation to look at Tim Burton and say, well, he's kind of going for the easy money in a mm-hmm. way, isn't he? I mean, he's he's going for these beloved properties I mean, a Batman movie, that's not gonna that's not gonna fail. You know? Right. Even if someone incompetent takes on that property, you've got a guaranteed nine digit return mm-hmm. on on Batman if you make a Batman movie. So, you know, uh, you're you're not exactly taking on a difficult task here, Tim Burton. I think what people don't realize is no, he's taking on a monumentally difficult task. For sure. Yeah, he's gonna he's making a movie out of a property that's guaranteed box office, but audiences are fickle and yeah. angry a lot of times. If they feel like this property, this beloved property that they're invested in has been stepped on or abused or something, audiences are not predisposed to being forgiving. Honestly, when I look through the list of all the different things that Tim Burton has worked on, and I see all the different properties that he's remade and quite frankly, not been successful with all of them. No, absolutely not. That is the height of bravery in a lot of ways that he's willing to go out on that limb, not just once or twice, but almost every single time. I don't know, man, that takes a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I genuinely appreciate the fact that even though he's gotten dinged quite a few times, he continues going back to the remake well for better or worse, that's pretty amazing. I mean, that is really what he's done since the beginning of his film career is bring to us a new way of looking at something we've probably already seen a bunch of times. Yeah. I mean, even in the case of what a lot of people consider to be is, you know, one of his worst films, if not his worst films, like Mars Attacks. Right. Based on books and comics and trading cards from, you know, this sort of, late 50s, early 60s, atomic age aesthetic. That was this thing that already existed. And he said, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to take a whack at it and see if this is a filmable thing. And even his biographical accounts, Ed Wood, Big Eyes, Mm -hmm. these are real people that really lived in the world with real stories. (laughs) And he said, I I can tell that story. I know I can tell that story in such a way. Um, You know, again, Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows, Mm -hmm. um, TV properties, movie properties, superhero properties. He's committed to putting his own spin on it. And by the way, and I'm sure you are old enough to remember the the Batman phenomenon oh, yeah. around Tim Burton. Right. I'm sorry. I just I can't I can't let this whole episode go without mentioning. You had I, a moment. You had I a was, moment with Batman. Oh my gosh. I was so obsessed. I just absolutely drank this movie and I had memorized it. I mean, mm-hmm. I that's not an exaggeration. I hate to say that. So I had good. memorized Tim Burton's Batman. I had watched it so many times. I had worn out our VHS copy of it. Obviously we're in this enormous superhero oh, popularity. Yeah, right. Daniel, I'm sure you know more than anyone. It grosses a lot of people out. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about this in a future episode, right? <laughs> we'll wait for it. And so many people hate these superhero movies. And I'll admit, it gets wearing. It gets taxing 
just the constant barrage of $100 million superhero movies. But the $100 million superhero movie was not really a thing. It wasn't much of a thing before Tim Burton's Batman. No, absolutely not. It had Richard Donner's Superman, and that was its own thing. But, but Tim Burton, I think people make the mistake of saying he made the dark Batman, and that was... But did he? He did. But he made the Tim Burton Batman. Yes. And that's a little bit different than saying he made the dark Batman. He did this Tim Burton take that I think a lot of people just thought, well, this is how superheroes are done now, I guess. Which is such a testament to what mm-hmm. Tim Burton is able to do and his ability to sell his own aesthetic. And, uh, you know, I look back on it now. Very flawed movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of the movies, you know, both of his Batman movies, I should say. Very flawed movies. But Tim Burton was able to kind of wrap all that in the context of this goofy Jack Nicholson clown who was like spraying people with laughing gas and swirly whirlies as part of the aesthetic and greens and purples and, you know, mixed with this weird gothic architecture and just, you know, and on down the line. And you were all you were just kind of taken with the whole thing. Let me tell you about this guy I know, Jack. Mean kid, bad seed, hurt people. I like him already. <laughs> now, you know, the problem was he got sloppy, you know, crazy. And then he had his... This light shot! Now you want to get nuts? Come on! Let's get nuts. Tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? I always ask that of all my prey. I just like the sound of it. Never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> like I said, I know ultimately we're talking about Pee Wee's Big Adventure. There's so many similarities, though. So many. It's it's really really wild how he was able to take this really really specific aesthetic and say, "Bring your kids, bring your parents. I promise, there's something here for everyone." And I feel like so many movies that make that promise fail to deliver, but somehow Tim Burton does it, and he still does it. That's he what's amazing. To me. He's still able to deliver on this, on that promise. He gets so many interesting performances from the people he chooses to cast, and specific. I mean, all of his casts, but specifically casts his leads. I mean, I'm thinking like Pee Wee Herman was already a, a well defined character, so I'll, I'll exclude him for a minute. But I think of Michael Keaton. I think of Johnny Depp. And I think here's a director who's able to find moments, things about a person. He knows are there for this character that we actually, I think, as viewers, and we take this for granted, see for the first time in their um, acting career. And so I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if it's the worlds that he creates that actually allows these actors to then find something that they wouldn't have otherwise, and only Tim Burton could do that. Um, I don't know if it's his trust of an actor, but there's something really remarkable that we see. We, we, have, we put Beetlejuice and Batman next mm-hmm. to each other, and Michael Keaton, both of those roles, it's amazing that they're the same person. Yeah. If we put Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, and Ichabod Crane mm-hmm. maybe next week. It's amazing that those three people are the same person. I mean, right. or and Sweeney Todd. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Sure, all that's going on there. Yeah, I think there has to be a level of empowerment, right, for these actors because if Tim Burton is over directing the performances of these actors, 
I think you're probably going to get a flatter performance, but I think he knows, I think he chooses people, you know, there's no way around it. Michael Keaton, Johnny Depp, these are great actors Mm -hmm. and they're character actors. Yeah. And they're going to bring something specific to every role and they're going to spend their own alone time off in a trailer or off in their home or off in the woods or wherever they go banging away on these characters, trying to find the essence of it. And I think that's one side of it. The other side of it is going back to Batman again. You have Michael Keaton putting on this Batman costume and you'll hear these actors say things like, it was when I put on the costume that it really happened, that I knew who I was. I knew the voice. I knew the posture, the Mm nonverbals. I knew everything about this guy. I think that is the thing that Tim Burton is ultra involved in and he makes sure is part of not just the costuming but the sets and you yeah. know, the look of Edward Scissorhands or the look of Sweeney Todd or the look of Beetlejuice. By the way, these are collaborative processes to get mm-hmm. the look of this character done. This isn't just Tim Burton's decision. Also a good point to mention, all of this originates from Tim Burton's personal drawings. Oh, yeah. He's a, his an own artist at his heart. Yeah. What a, what a fantastic illustrator and animator just in his own he right. used to work for Disney, right? And I think he got fired or something. Oh, really? Wow. It's their loss. Interesting. Yeah. But he's just, he's such a visual stylist. You can't discount how much aesthetic information that an actor is going to draw from all that. I mean, yeah, there's some that are more ultra stylized. I mean, you know, some of his movies are just so ultra stylized that it's, you know, Beetlejuice is an example. I mean, every set was just bananas. But then you have things that are more subtly done, like like Big Eyes, for Mm -hmm. example. Now, that was more of a the stylization more had to do with the period than Mm -hmm. his personal aesthetic. But there's something about it that's still a Tim Burton film. Yeah. And that's that's what's amazing. And I and I have to think that that translates into the psyche of the actor. I don't know. What do you think? There has to be an element in which they are able to be themselves reimagined. I mean, we've gone going back to that. Like, given the world that Tim Burton creates in a world that is created so confidently that I think would inspire an actor to be free to to say, okay, how am I to be in this? I mean, this is a, a fully imagined world. And yeah, I think makeup, I think costuming, I think that has a lot to do with it. But there's such a trust that, oh, this is a new thing. I'm not playing a different version of myself in this thing I'm familiar with. Oh no, this is a completely new environment and a new aesthetic and I can interact with it. Yeah. in a new way i mean i don't know i just imagine that that would have to be some in some way like you said empowering freeing yeah. for an actor to do that yeah so um this is a tough question for me to answer i don't even know how i would answer it but uh um things that tim burton was doing in peewee's big adventure he he said i i don't know i think i want to leave that behind this in is films. really hard for me to answer he was so fully realized in this first film. That's and what's tough about it. All the it. way, and I really want to talk about this, and we don't have to talk about it for a long period of time, but the music is so fully realized even. Okay. okay. <laughs> we, I don't know how we talk about Tim Burton without talking about Danny Elfman, but... So I, that was what was amazing to me was, because I, I remember we talked about like uh, how amazing it was that David Fincher saw Trent Reznor and said, you know what, I think the guy from Nine Inch Nails could put together a film score. Meanwhile, whatever it was, 10 years plus earlier, you have Tim Burton saying, get me that Oingo Boingo guy. I think, I bet he could score a film. I don't know why. 
And now... Who'd never scored a film. Never scored a film. Lead singer and guitarist of Oingo Boingo. And, and now, not only a successful film score composer, one of the most successful film score composers of all time. I know. It's amazing. amazing. It's amazing. That's one of the things, going back to Pee Wee Herman, that I was actually in awe of. Yeah. was the music. And I think one of the reasons why Danny Elfman's music works so well, and it is really obvious, it's not subtle, it's completely ever-present to what is going on, but it works so well in what Tim Byrne is attempting to do. Right. I know we were talking about what does he not do, but I just No, couldn't. but I love this track that you put us on because it is true, because you can see that Tim Burton is looking forward to the music in so many different moments in the film. I'm thinking specifically of the moment when Pee-wee walks up to the door mm. of the mansion of, you know, oh, his friend who he knows course. stole his bike. The knocking. He's knocking on the door, but he's knocking in this very strange and exaggerated and stylized way. It, it, you just know Tim Burton is telling Paul Rubens, I know it's weird, but I want you to pound your fist in this really rhythmic and over-exaggerated way. It's not going to make sense now. Yeah, I'm going to have a music cue associated with each knock, and it's going to be great. And I, I can just see in my mind's eye <laughs> Pee Wee Herman going, okay, you're the boss. Let's do it. You know, Frankenweenie, I guess you know what you're doing. And then sure enough, Danny Elfman made that little moment, which should have been a nothing moment, into a masterpiece. So this is why I think this is helpful, because I think a, a lot of people would have the assumption that what Paul Rumitz is actually doing is knocking to the beat. And I think what you just pointed out is really significant. At that point in, the fil in filmmaking, there is no music that they're knocking to. Very the, rarely. Right. The music is being made to the action, which means that the actor needs to act in such a way that music can be made to it, right? Right. And so I think that's a... I mean, I just want to highlight that point, because I think it's really important that that is a directorial emphasis for yeah. the actor to do. And it's just it takes uh, ridiculous confidence and vision to be able to know what that's going to look like and sound like before it exists in any way. Yeah, that's amazing. So, I mean, kind of go, so going back to your question about what doesn't he do, here's one thing, and I, I could be wrong, but I still see this in his films, but I actually don't think he does it to the extent that he did in Pee Wee Herman. I feel like Tim Burton takes a long time in Pee-wee's Big Adventure to establish the scene or the feel or the environment that he doesn't necessarily take in later films. Like, there were moments in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I was actually thinking specifically of the, the opening sequence, that I felt like there were a lot of pieces he gave me where the editing could actually be a little tighter. And it, it kind of felt over time, like, okay, I actually get it. I understand Pee-wee, I understand his environment, that I think Tim Burton, at least in some of his later films, got a little bit tighter on to give me a bit to say, okay, you know what, like, here's the environment, here's the actor, here's what he's doing, here's the tone I'm going for, so now we can, we can move through the scene. And that, that's not just in the opening scene, that's just my example, but I actually think he does that throughout the film. Things were extended that I didn't feel like they needed to be. I don't know if that makes sense, but that was kind of my, my, some of my experience of the movie. Well, it's interesting. I, uh, I was thinking about the question also, like, well, you know, what does he do? And I don't know if I even know how to answer that question. 
what you might look at as the most expensive stuff that happened in the movie for me personally was maybe the least interesting right okay in the sense that like i i think probably it's safe to say some of the most expensive things that happened were peewee's wild ride through all the different hollywood sets Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing which i mean really well done but to me it just felt like okay they needed a climax and so they they wanted to do that but to me it wasn't quite as interesting as what he was doing with the more with the smaller moments mm-hmm. sitting and with Simone in the teeth of the dinosaur or I don't know if you'd consider it a small moment or not but you know the very end where he's watching the movie of his own life yeah with, PW with, exactly PW um played by James Brolin uh which is just which was such a brilliant move it's amazing so fantastic with a cameo by a scene-chewing Pee-wee Herman in the background. How incredible is that? that? It was just such a brilliant thing. Whoever thought of that idea, I would just, you know, deserves a, a, an extra bump in their pay because that was one of the most memorable things of any Tim Burton movie was the, the Hollywood version of Pee-wee Herman at the end. It was so good. So funny. Have you got any messages for room 104? The name's Herman. P.W. Herman. No, nothing right now, Mr. Herman. I'll be in the bar. Whatever the case, though, those are the moments that I'm calling Mr. Herman. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Herman. I just the 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 moment where Pee Wee rides off from the biker gang on one of the one of the biker gang's hogs, and he immediately smashes into a billboard. The fact that Tim Burton saw that in the script and said, I'm going to get that whole shot as a wide yeah. and leave it as a wide. It's good. That is, that's such comedic sense. Yeah. That, because I feel like most directors would be like, oh, no, I really want to milk that moment. Let's get, a, let's get it from five different angles and let's milk this. And, you know, this is a great, this is a great thing we can do. Tim Burton said, no, I'm just going to stay wide from the POV of the bikers and just let Pee Wee off in the distance smash through the billboard and faint knowing that that's the bigger laugh in the long run and it's true and the reason i think why it works is because no matter how many times you go back to it i think the wide makes you think it's not gonna happen i get you know like you expect oh you're gonna see him right off into the sunset yeah it's an interruption of peewee's confidence in that moment and in such a specific and comedic way and that's something that you can't teach a director you can't teach a director that that's funnier than a close-up, you mm-hmm. know? You just kind of have to know it. In some types of movies and in some types of scenes, a close-up is funnier than a wide. When is a wide funnier? When is a close-up funnier? You just kind of have to know. And Tim Burton knows. And I think that's the kind of aesthetic that he had on his animated shorts that had the studios and had Paul Rubens and had other people looking at it and saying, I don't know, man. I think that he can. I think he could tackle this movie and have it be great. Mm-hmm. The climax of the film: Pee Wee riding through Hollywood, yeah, interrupting these films in a way that makes those movies better, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> as a result of that, again, that interruption. There's almost this really odd meta thing going on that yeah. I think I do think Tim Burton's actually aware of. I mean, I don't think it's any accident that it's on a Hollywood studio right. and they're obviously making a Hollywood movie. I think it's such a genius thing. Yeah. Do you remember the Pee Wee dance, the rap? Do you remember that? 
Like in the in the film? No. The, the, Wait. The, 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 that came later. No. You're too young. Wait, what is this? The Pete Joski Love, the rapper. Check it out, party people, cause this party is burning. For burning. a new day, burning. I know you've been yearning. Yearning for all yearning. you people concerning. A brand new dance called the Pee Wee Herman. Just move your hand into the I feel sorry for you that this was not part of your cultural experience. You should, I mean. Joski Love. Wow. <laughs> well, anyway, favorite and least favorite Tim Burton films. You on the spot here? No, I'm not. I would probably say favorites. Again, and this is always the argument. Not the argument. This is always the conversation that I feel like we get into, which is, you know, what's a good, what's the difference between a good film versus a film that was important to you? And sure. thought, so anyway. Um, I'd say that though some of the my three favorite Tim Burton films would be Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, and Sweeney Todd. All right. I think those are some of my favorite. Yeah. My least favorite, honestly, so a confession of the Tim Burton films I've seen. So I haven't seen some of his more recent ones. Right. Mars Attacks, mm-hmm. Dark Shadows. I I mean those are the the two definitive ones that I'm like. Yeah, I don't really like. Other ones I think I'm more neutral about. Ed Wood might be my favorite. What about you? Incredible film. Um, Favorite Tim Burton film is a tie, and I don't know how to pick between them. Uh, It's between Ed Wood and Big Fish. Big Fish is so good. Yeah, fantastic. And it gets better. I would actually say that's a film that gets better every time you watch it. Yeah, Tim Burton's most big-hearted movie, uh, I would say. And I think a lot of people forget that Ed Wood is also a huge-hearted movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is. You, you just you love Ed Wood so mm-hmm. much. Cut, Brent. We're moving on. That was perfect. Perfect, uh, Mr. Wood. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. That cardboard headstone tipped over. The, this graveyard is obviously phony. Nobody will ever notice that. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. I can't. I don't know how to pick between those two movies because they're they're both not just such great films, but they're just so important to me. In my formative days, I already mentioned you know Batman was mm-hmm. this huge thing. Like I said, not a movie that has aged as well as some of his other films, but the biggest disappointment I think I've ever felt after a, a Tim Burton film was probably Planet of the Apes. Oh, I, yeah, that's that would be. That's, yeah, I forgot about that one. Which, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say was just like a complete failure or anything. I felt like this was Tim Burton's moment of trying to accommodate something that he felt like the fans wanted. There was so much winking all through that movie, you know, all the way down to just like, you know, the Charlton Heston cameo and the, you know, the damn dirty apes and all that. Damn I will stop him, father. Damn them. Damn them all to hell. And this, the the ending that's still such an enigma, I still don't know what it means. It, it was it's just... so confusing. It, it's so confusing. And, you know, you can interpret it a thousand different ways. For all the great aesthetic that went into it, I just don't know that it really worked. Mm-hmm. There's just so many of his films that I love, though. Like you said, I, I love Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice. Big Eyes is even really good. Big Eyes is a great film. In fact, I would say it's the best of his most recent work, just as a biography of this right. person. It's just it's so, so worth seeing. 
Um, you know, there's other things. I, recently, with our little guy, we rewatched the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh. And if you can just separate it from the original and just not have that be a, a factor or a character, it's a great film. It really is. Tim Burton's version of it is so nicely done. Johnny Depp's interpretation of Willy Wonka is actually great. You can't help it. You have to compare it to Gene Wilder, I mm-hmm. guess. If you can make yourself not do that, though, you're going to love that movie, and it's a really great movie to watch with your kids. I'm Veruca Salt. It's very nice to meet you, sir. I always thought a Veruca was a type of wart you got on the bottom of your foot. <laughs> I walk out of loop. I love the chocolate. I can see that. So do I. I never expected to have so much in common. Does watching it with your child kind of make that more possible to actually see it maybe it does because i was i was genuinely able to see it through his eyes i think and i i really enjoyed it yeah i guess so i i wasn't so focused on what it was that i was missing from the original Hmm. and you know there's things in the original that i'm like oh my gosh that was one of my favorite like it's completely missing the fizzy lifting drinks scene which i love in the original i love the fact that charlie bucket gets yelled at about taking fizzy lifting drinks and all that and that's completely gone from this. But like I said, when you're when you're watching it with a five year old who has no exposure to any of it, I think we even mentioned in the in the kids special, kids aren't aware of things like cliches mm-hmm. and previously existing properties and, and comparative art analysis and all that. You know, they just want stuff that speaks to them. You know, I don't know. I, I would say if you have heretofore written off the Tim Burton version of the Willy Wonka story, I would say give it another look mm-hmm. because it's actually really good. That's cool. Yeah. I, whatever. He's just, he's done so many films and so many. There's scenes that forever stick in my mind. Um, there's a scene in Batman Returns, mm-hmm. which is such a great scene. Not one of his best movies, but it's the scene where Bruce Wayne is dancing with Selena Kyle. Oh, yeah. They look at each other and they realize who the other actually is at the same time. They have this sort of nonverbal psychological exchange Mm -hmm. that is so deftly done. I don't know. It's just something that's so hard to do that, you know, I still look at that scene and just from a, a purely analytical perspective... It's perfection, and it's in Batman Returns of all movies. No, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. But this can be even deadly. Oh my God! Does this mean we have to start fighting? Let's go outside. I think one of his more visually beautiful films, I don't know if it's underrated. I just don't know if it's been seen recently, is Sleepy Hollow. It's been a long time since I've caught that one. So you're, you're saying that one it holds up really well. Huh? Well, I think it's visually beautiful. Yeah. I think it's one of those, it's one of his films that takes place mostly outside. Well, you know what Tim Burton does with exteriors and nature specific. I mean, it's just really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Always winding our way back to the film in question, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Where do you put it in the lineup of Tim Burton classics? I think I put it toward the middle, but maybe even a little higher because I think it does have a lot of the Tim Burton that I appreciate, 
but I think he's built upon that to make some really wonderful works that I like more. But I think it's still, to answer the question that we like to answer, I don't think it's for completists only. Mm. I think it's a film that stands on its own, and I think it's a film that is worth either watching for the first time or rewatching. Yeah. And I'd be so curious if there are people out here who are listening to this podcast who are going to watch it for the first time, what your reaction is to it. Yeah, where do you rank it? Completely agree. This is not a completist movie. It's it's almost sobering how well this movie still stands up decades later. It's just it's still such a cool, compelling, all ages hilarious piece of art. Hilarious. It's always going to be a great film. No, it's not his best film, but you know what? Even as I say that, I don't want that to take away from how great this film is. I, I guess I would say I would say it's in his upper half of his films. Yeah, fact, I think that's fair. Maybe even in his in the upper third of his films. Okay, I, it's just it's so lovingly made, and that that was one thing that I wanted to mention, not just about Tim Burton films in general, but specifically about Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It has this handmade quality to it. You don't always get with films. It just it it's Tim Burton loves this movie, mm-hmm. you know, and and you don't even need an interview with Tim Burton to know that he loved working on this movie. He loved giving us this movie. He loved crafting the stop motion moments, the animated moments, and and these these shots and these scenes and this character and the story. I honestly, I I feel nothing but love from Tim Burton or an affection for what he was giving us with this movie. Yeah. And that's such a, that's such a unique thing. That's a, especially with all the rigors and mm-hmm. budgetary constraints and, you know, all the different things that a person has to worry about when they're directing a film, certainly their first film where there's just monumental pressure. He had nothing but affection for all the different scenes and every single thing that he was showing us. And it, I envisioned this young guy <laughs> who, was giving all that he had and giving his very specific artistic vision to this really, really cool thing and this funny thing. I'm always just going to love and I'm always going to recommend Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So, yeah, I mean, while he would go on to even greater heights later, you're just never going to replace the love that went into this movie. So, And yeah. I think that that's not... this. Pee-wee's a character that you could shit on. Right, like as a as a filmmaker, on paper it's kind of dumb. Yeah, and and you could work against it by and probably create something that might last for a brief moment because yeah. you're making fun of something, but that's not what's going on here. And I think that's one of the things that Paul Rubens knew about Tim Burton when he saw his previous work was, oh, here's a guy who's actually going to take this seriously and recognize this for what it is. And I, I think that that's, I I feel when I watch a Tim Burton film, here's a filmmaker who's extremely generous and believes in what he's doing. I don't believe that he's doing something to just do it. I think he actually is bringing himself always to the film. And that doesn't mean we always like the product necessarily or what he's making, but I don't think that can be denied. Yeah, I and I think it's I think it's a testament to not just Paul Rubin's commitment to this character, but also Tim Burton's commitment that this character was so fully realized mm. that we as a culture had difficulty believing that there was an actor behind it almost, right, you know. Yeah. It was such a specific thing. And I think that's why we as a culture and I include myself in this 
we're so heartbroken when the facade came crumbling down when Pee Wee Herman was caught jacking off in a in a in a yeah. adult theater. You know, I mean, I, whatever. And I don't say that to you know in, in a joking way. I mean, it was just such a bummer, man. Yeah. It really was to have that sort of illusion sort of broken down. You know, I I just I still remember all the smug headlines about this is, oh, can you believe Pee Wee Herman is actually a, you know, dot, dot, dot. I love this movie. I love this character. I love what Tim Burton did with us. And Tim Burton is so directly responsible for the Pee Wee Herman phenomenon and for the love that we still have, <laughs> evidenced by the fact that we're still making Pee Wee Herman movies in the last couple of years 2017 i know it, yeah. it's it's still happening or 2016 whenever it was yeah it's crazy it, it's just really really cool so anyway i don't mean to gush too much or to overstate but tim burton was one of the first directors and I'm, we talked about this a little bit in the spielberg episode but it was one of those early directors that i was like oh there's a guy behind this look in this kind of thing yep. i want more of that kind of thing yep. from that guy and uh, Tim Burton was a really important director to me at a very specific time in my life. I think his art should be celebrated. It should be. In this season, no less. The magic, and we talked about this in a special, but the magic that I think he creates in his filmmaking can be enjoyed by every person in a family, no matter their age or, or kind of where they are in life. It yeah. brings something really wonderful to your viewing experience. And what better time of year? I know. Yeah. Well, listen, I think that's about all we've got to say yeah. about uh, Tim Burton and his freshman film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Daniel and I resounding, absolutely, not only does this film hold up, but it's a film that you should enjoy, have to enjoy, not just for yourself, but for your whole family. Yep. Grateful to Tim Burton for his freshman film. And thank you so much for listening. And we'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. Uh, if there are any directors or films you'd love for us to consider, um, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. You can email us at freshman15film at gmail.com. That's freshman15film at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can also find us on iTunes. And would love if you had the time to give us a rating and a review. It really helps with the search engine for people to find us. Also, before we go, I want to mention that um, a fantastic service that Daniel and I subscribe to is, of course, Filmstruck, curators of fantastic classic films and films that, that are more recent and some that have been around for quite a while. Uh, they curate the, uh, in part at least, the Criterion Collection of Films. Um, these are just people that enjoy the art form of films and want to make sure that they offer a curated collection. Streaming online, I can think of just so many different film experiences that I've been able to have. I don't have to be the guy who's like, yeah, Fellini, I've always meant to get around <laughs> to him. Because of a service like Filmstruck, I'm able to get around to it. So. If you're considering spending your hard-earned cash on a service where you're able to see some fantastic films well beyond the kinds of things that you can get on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or any of these, Filmstruck, uh, a really, really great service that I'm happy and proud to recommend. I mean, it's a perfect Christmas gift. Perfect Christmas gift. You know, a year subscription to Filmstruck. Make the film lover in your life 
excited about their lives. Trust me, you can't go wrong. Well, listen, Daniel, I wanted to say to you, Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry Christmas to you as well, Jeremy Bear. And to you, the listeners, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.